Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Ziad Ahmed, CEO of Juve Consulting. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from sunny New Jersey. I'm on vacation, but this is a little break from my vacation. We'll put it that way. A little break from your vacation. Well, it's nice that you broke out of the city. Feels like uh, every time we've spoken over the last two years, you've been well. Actually, take I take that back. You did spend a good portion of of the early pandemic in New Jersey, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know if it's the uh, ideal place for a vacation, but uh, no, it is. New Jersey is the best place on <laughs> earth. <laughs> All right, there you go, Jersey pride. Well, where do you uh, where do you spend a few years away from it? Maybe you'll change your mind. But. I did. I went to college. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Well, I'm glad I, you I went to college out of state. Out of state. Not too far. Another Ivy League. We're, we're going to get to that. I used to say that Albert Einstein lived in Princeton. So he did. Wouldn't you want to live where the smartest man in the world lived? And there are many, many really wonderfully smart people in Princeton that I was very lucky to grow up yes. around. Yeah. Right. And it's a beautiful part of the world. I, I spent a tiny bit of time in Princeton. Princeton is nice. The rest of New Jersey. No, there are many nice parts of New Jersey. There are many nice parts of New Jersey. We have the beach. We're close to Philly. We're close to New York. We have waterfalls, nature. We have all the things. We haven't even, even introduced our guest and he's like arguing with us. <laughs> That's me. That's me. That's it. <laughs> Well, in that case, let me introduce our guest. Um, we've got a really, I'm super excited to talk to him. His name is Ziad Ahmed. He's 23. He's the chief executive and co-founder of Juve Consulting, a New York City-based firm that advises companies on how to market to Gen Z. And of course, before we even ask him to tell us who he is and what he does and why, I just want to say that I came across Ziad in a New York Times article a few months back and realized he would be a great source for a New York Times article I was writing about the evolving meaning of luxury and how Swiss watch brands were becoming more purpose-led. And I thought, well, let me get the take of somebody who's young and specializes in talking to companies about how they can position themselves for this new generation of Gen Z consumers. And for those of you who don't know how to define Gen Z, I'm told it's basically people born between 1997 and 2012. If you were too young to remember 9-11, then you're probably a member of Gen Z. Does that sound right to you, Ziad? Yeah, I mean, that's loosely correct. We usually say around the same years. We say 96 to 2010, right? But it's, you know, generational science is a very imperfect field. But yeah, it's around, around there for sure. I was born in 99. You were born in 99, my God. Well, so, okay, so we know you're from Princeton. We know you're a huge lover of Jersey. I am. Well, tell us a little bit about growing up, where you went to school, and uh, eventually how you got to be a specialist on your generation. But let's go to the beginning. Were you born in Princeton? I was. In, in 1999, I was born in Princeton, New Jersey. Born and raised and proud. I guess long story short, I grew up in Princeton. I grew up in, a, in an American Muslim household. You know, I'm Bangladeshi American Muslim. And that's really important to, I think, a lot of how I look at the world and how I moved through the world. Really fortunate and privileged to grow up, you know, with a lot of financial stability, right, and having gone to private school my whole life. And in eighth grade, basically started a nonprofit built around this idea that I felt really uniquely privileged, you know, to have access to a computer, right, to have a really vibrant social life. And I, as an American Muslim, as a 
person of color, as a political progressive, I noticed in my hallways how kids were being otherized, right? Or treated differently and that didn't sit right with me. And so I wanted to do something about it because I thought it would only get worse in high school. And so I started Redefy, which is a nonprofit that's basically a, a by teens for teens organization that creates resources to make communities and schools more equitable and inclusive. And I had no idea what the hell I was doing when I started Redefy, but I was this presumptuous, passionate young kid uh, who wanted to change the world. And so I got started and it took off in ways that I never could have imagined, right? Because I think young people are grappling with questions around social impact, around purpose, right? Like we're talking about, but don't always have the places to talk about those things. And we tried to create that And quickly, I found myself in rooms that I didn't know existed at the White House with industry leaders, with decision makers at 15, 16 years old, right, where I was oftentimes the youngest person in the room by two decades and where I realized how often young people were being spoken about but not spoken to. And that also didn't sit right with me. And so my junior year of high school, I started Juve Consulting with this idea being that I believe the world looks better when diverse young people have a seat at the table. Um, And I believe the expert on any reality is the person closest to that reality. And so I started Juve and again, had no idea what I was doing, thought this would be some small little side project. You know, I was busy with Model UN and school and all of that fun stuff, but it took off because people needed this. And six years later, I'm now graduated from college. I graduated in May. I was working full time or running the business full time. And it's sort of been this really extraordinary roller coaster. And I've gotten to work with thousands of young people from all around the world and really learn a lot about marketing, about business, about purpose, about social media, about our generation. And while I certainly don't know that I consider myself an expert in any of those things, I I certainly consider myself familiar with these discourses. And, And so happy to provide my perspective wherever it might be useful here, right? While, you know, caveat that with the fact that, of course, my perspective is limited, right? And that I am one person and I am one privileged person from America and I speak from that perspective. Uh, but certainly my, my perspectives have been challenged by my really diverse and dynamic team who push me in my thinking every single day. And, you know, I'm happy to speak to any or all of the above. When you try to kind of get the pulse of your generation or to talk to companies about how to reach your generation, do you rely on survey data? Is it more anecdotal? Is it more instinctual? It's a mix. So we have a network of almost 10,000 young people that we built called The Receipt. And we certainly send surveys, do qualitative interviews, you know, in-depth research, you know, pulsing that community to get insights about Gen Z. We also have a really vibrant team. We have almost 30 full-time employees and then 200 contractors supporting, you know, the vast majority of whom Gen Z is, the vast majority of whom current students who are really not speculating about youth culture they're living in and setting it. And I think we have a unique dexterity at the company of being real young people who know culture because we're living it, but also real business people who understand P&Ls because we've been running a profitable business for six years. And so we have this unique dexterity that allows us to, of course, embed research that we've done or, or that we've done with partners and as well as our own anecdotal experience, as well as our business perspective as people who really become thought leaders in the space insofar as understanding how we can pivot business to be more Gen Z facing and to be more purpose driven and inclusive. Who are some of the clients you've worked with? Tell me a little bit about the kind of work you've done with them? You know, we worked with a ton of clients sort of ranging from Fortune 500s, you know, to startups, to political campaigns, to nonprofits. Some clients that we're really proud to have worked with, right, that that I can share is, you know, Jansport is a great client of ours that we've worked with for a number of years. And we've had the opportunity to work with them on sort of a long-term basis to really be their Gen Z sounding board, to really be an external part of their team, to ground them in Gen Z culture and to execute on big ideas that we might have. Uh, We've gotten to do a number of TikTok campaigns with them, you know, ranging from topics like mental health to sustainability, really prioritizing social impact at every step of the way in the work that we do with them. And so that's some work that we've done that I'm really proud of. We've also gotten the chance to work with really exciting startups like uh, Geneva, which is a startup that is a competitor to GroupMe, 
We've gotten to do some amazing experiences and events for them, as well as some influencer marketing, as well as really building community on campuses and with key leaders they needed that they wanted to, to get to know, right, to bring their communities on to the platform. And so, you know, our work really spans all sorts of types of clients, and it can look like anything from research to strategy to marketing implementation. And is there anything that you would consider really defined your generation as opposed to, let's say, millennials or Gen X or boomers or, you know, what are the what are some of the key things that you find uh, particularly important to younger consumers as far as when they're looking at what to buy? What I think about a lot and what we consult on a lot is the difference between Gen Z and millennials and the difference between Gen Z and other cohorts. And how I like to think about it is millennials really grew up as digital natives in a world where things turned on and off. And that changed a lot about how they moved through the world. Gen Z is really growing up as social media natives. And that has changed everything about how we move through the world. And I think, you know, oftentimes older generations might look at social media as a tool or as a platform, whereas the way that I really think about it is a language. Social media is another language that I speak. And whether I choose to be quiet or loud one day, English is still the undercurrent of, you know, the society that I am around and can make me feel like my most empowered self or make me feel like my smallest self. But it is always there. and It defines so much of how I move through the world. And social media is no different, right? We are all really fluent in this language. Some of us choose to speak it a lot more than others. But it allows us to find community, to express ourselves. But it also oftentimes really hurts us, right? much like English might do. And I think that insight really governs a lot of how we move through the world. And, you know, how I think of Gen Z being different based on being social media natives is we're sometimes called the plural, like the first generation that thinks in terms of we. And millennials really fought a lot of really important battles for us. They said, I can be whoever I want to be. And we're saying, hell yeah, I can be. But right, if I'm the only weirdo at my high school, I can use social media and find the, another weirdo thousands of miles away and we can be weird together. And this idea of expanding the notion of who we are and connecting with like-minded folks and building community, I think is really central to how Gen Z is moving through the world. This intersectional mindset. I think is really critical to how we are making political, consumer, everyday life choices. Uh, and I don't think that's slowing down anytime soon. Really well said. Um, you talk about social media, and of course, I'm a Gen Xer, so I think of them as platforms, but I do appreciate what you said about it being more of a language. But still, there are different platforms. Which platforms are essential? Which ones do you feel like maybe are for a different generation? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there are some things that I think broadly unite Gen Z, even though we're this incredibly diverse, multifaceted, non-monolithic generation of over 2 billion, right? And so I don't think there's any one trend or any one platform that I think represents all of us. However, I think like from a US perspective and from a broad Gen Z perspective, TikTok is the moment, right? There's no questioning that. TikTok is the platform where celebrities are made overnight, right? They are the people that we are following every single day and talking to our friends about. And, you know, a lot of the cultural commentary that defines the zeitgeist of what I think young people are talking about is really being disseminated on TikTok. I mean, I think what's really powerful about the platform is that it serves up videos whether or not you follow that person. And so many of us across boundaries and across borders are really interacting with the same content, the same influencers, the same trends because of just how global that algorithm really is. And so I think a lot of the Gen Z zeitgeist is really, you know, that TikTok really is the epicenter of. But of course, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, you know, Discord, 
many platforms continue to be very relevant twitch for right with gen z and you know obviously facebook is maybe less so in a present sense but there are still definitely gen zers on the platform specifically in certain regions and markets and you know i think we're also in a bit of an evolution right when it comes to social media the two most recent popular social media platforms paparazzi and be real you know are sort of anti-social media social medias and so i think certainly the next phase of platform will look a little bit different than the current yeah i've, I've never even heard of those uh two platforms have you Vic? no because <laughs> you you want to explain them and specifically how they're anti-social media social media so paparazzi is an app uh where basically you can't post a picture of yourself basically your profile is your tagged photos if you will right your friends are your paparazzi and they can take gifts of you and then that populates onto your profile and then Be Real is an app where you get pinged once per day. And it's like you have two minutes to take a picture and you can only post once per day. And it takes a picture of both you and what you're looking at. The idea is I think paparazzi, you know, got a lot of traction because we're tired of having to curate our own profiles and our own aesthetic. A lot of what defines Gen Z is like this constant aspirational unapologeticness. We have felt so, like millennials, I think we're aspirationally excellent, right? Their social medias are unedited and sort of cringe, but they they love the influencer that looks perfect all of the time. Right? Gen Z is sort of the opposite. We edit our pictures a million times, test our captions, our friends but we love the influencers that dare to not give a damn and we're sort of tired of having to obsess over the editing and the captions and the engagement and paparazzi sort of took that away and said actually you know you can still get the social gratification of showing that you hung out with your friends but you don't have to be responsible for curating your own image your friends can just post quick gifs of you and it was sort of this rewriting of something that had become quite exhausting in the current social media paradigm to us and be real similarly right there's a lot this exhaustion of posting the right picture at the right time and the right caption and be real said no we're too addicted we're too obsessed with social media post once per day showcase what you're doing in that moment be real about it and that's it and those pictures all delete the next day i think these are really being born out of frustrations with the current digital ecosystem to maybe build tech that is more in line with maybe what we're looking for right now as you were talking about be real i realized i had read about it and it's you know struck me as this clearly a, a move to embrace and and foster and support a much more authentic accounting of how people live and conduct their lives in a way that doesn't have the perfection that you now see on so many people's Instagram accounts, certainly on brands. It reminds me of an influencer I know in the watch space who loves taking photos of watches on people's wrists with the flash on. It, you know, it has this really grainy, yeah, these really grainy qualities. It's real and it's definitely like her thing. And it, it looks nothing like a, what a brand might look like on their Instagram feed, which, you know, is essentially an ad campaign just translated to the boxes on a feed. I guess, where does that leave you in terms of actual non-digital experiences? I mean, it sounds like you guys as a generation, clearly we've been talking about your role and the power you've accrued through social media, but where does that leave you in the real world? Like, are you guys as a generation, how do I even ask this? I mean, do you value non-digital experiences? Yeah, I think, you know, we don't necessarily think of the real world as fundamentally separable from the digital world, right? I think that we have grown up in a digital world, a physical and digital world, right? One where the best experiences are a mesh and a molding of the two. We have friends that we may have never met in person that are very real friends of ours. But meeting them in person is a little consummation of that friendship, but you're sure as hell going to post the picture when you do. You know what I mean? And you're going to go to that event and you're going to love that experience and love building that community, but you're probably also going to want a digital record of that time that you got to spend together and create content around it. And so I think for a lot of us, we're really, of course, wanting amazing experiences that are fundamentally digital, right? Where the physical and the digital maybe are not as, you know, disparate and distinct as previously thought. 
So I want to just, I want to talk about brands a bit and about how Gen Z surveys the marketplace, you know, what kind of decisions they're making, what kind of factors they're considering as they look out to how they want to shop. I guess just to come back to how you and I first came into contact, it was for this article I was writing about purpose-led brands. Is that a chief consideration for most of your generation? Does a brand have a purpose? Does it embody that purpose? Is it authentic? And then, you know, let me then shop with them. Is that a first question or is that down the line? I, I certainly think it's, it's it's a first question for many Gen Zers. I'm wary of saying most insofar as I think that is a bit of a Western perspective. Um, I think for you know many Gen Zers globally, they're not necessarily economically in a position to be asking that question. Um, and even in a U.S. context or in a Western context, Gen Z is the most cash-trapped generation, right? Uh, both because of our age and because of inflation, right? And because of economic factors. I think many Gen Zers want their purchasing to be in line with their values and more purpose-driven. Not all Gen Zers are in an economic position to be paying the extra dollars for the more sustainable or for the more more purpose-driven product. But I think for many of us, it's top of mind, for sure. You know, as a Gen Xer, and Gen Xers are known to be uh, a little cynical, when I hear, you know, so many companies today say they're purpose-led and they're mission-led, and I think it's safe to say that most companies are actually money-led because that's, you know, they're companies, right? Obviously, they're doing this for a reason because people respond to it. And I guess my question is, you know, to what point does it start to kind of lose its meaning or do people start to look at it more skeptically? Well, I think maybe the reverse is true. I think as, it, as more demand for purpose-driven goods and for sustainable goods, right, as that sort of that trend increases, and I hope it's not a trend, right, hopefully this is here to stay, a society that demands more of business, I think we will continue to raise the threshold as to what we consider sustainable as to what we consider purpose-driven, as to what we consider actually social impact-oriented. And I think that's a good thing for us to constantly be challenging brands and you're not doing enough. You need to do better in X, Y, and Z way. And I think Gen Z is doing that. You know, to your point, I think there has been a lot of greenwashing. There has been a lot of brands parading themselves as purpose-driven while not actually showing the proof in the pudding. And I think more and more young people are going onto platforms to call brands out. Right, and say, well, this is the proof in the pudding that I'm discovering, right? And people, even if they don't do their own homework, they might see that and that becomes a narrative about that brand. But I think brands like a Patagonia who've been really consistent in their messaging and who they are and what they stand for continue to get love with Gen Z because I think that's what we're looking for, brands that are honest and that are meaningfully trying to make strides towards their mission. Uh, and I think more and more Gen Z founded brands are doing just that. And, and is there things that brands do that turn uh, Gen Zers off or that are not well-received or that come across as tone deaf? Of course, right? Like a million things. I think we would say that most marketing and advertising when it comes to Gen Z is bad, right? It is a bunch of adults making assumptions about what young people think is cool. And so it's going to seem trite and forced and cringe because it is. Uh, I think there's very little collaboration with Gen Zers to co-create products, campaigns, and ideas that actually resonate with our generation. And that's why Juke Consulting exists. Because I think most of the content, most of the messaging that is targeted towards our cohort is bad. And yeah, rubs us the wrong way for sure. You know, we're obviously a jewelry publication and we deal a lot with luxury products and luxury brands. Luxury in a way is kind of the, sometimes you think of it kind of the opposite of sustainability because sometimes it's about excess and jewelry and luxury. How does your generation, obviously people still, there are young people buying watches and, and things like that. How how do they tend to look at those things? Look, I can't, I don't have data in front of me, right, on Gen Z's sentiments, right, when it comes to luxury, but I can speak from my own perspective. I think luxury is in for a really rude awakening if it hasn't already woken up to it. 
it insofar as I think a lot about luxury, to your point, is fundamentally antithetical with a lot of Gen Z's values. I think notions around exclusivity, notions around income inequality, notions around gluttony and access are things that we are actively really scrutinizing, I think, as a cohort. I think there is certainly a place in the market for goods to cost more, but I think that costing more should be based on how sustainable is your supply chain? How well are you playing your employees? How much craftsmanship and labor actually went into the thoughtfulness of the product? We should pay more for better and more ethical goods, sure. But we should not pay more than a teacher is paid in this country for a product just because of its brand name. I find that to be fundamentally ludicrous individually. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I know there are definitely Gen Zers who disagree with me, who certainly think their $80,000 watch is worth it. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily pay $80,000 for a watch either, but it's obviously because I can't afford $80,000 for a watch. I mean, would you, do you think that if you, you know, were, you know, a dot-com billionaire, you might look at it a little differently or? No, like for me personally, absolutely not. I, you know, I, I do okay for myself and right? I run a fairly successful business for like for 30 full-time employees, you know, for a 23-year-old, I'm doing pretty well. I'm pretty frugal. And I try to give back where I can. And I think I probably spend a lot differently than maybe someone in my shoes 20 years ago. Because I think a lot of norms have shifted, right? Like some of the wealthiest peers my age, you only thrift, right? Like what is in vogue, what is in the zeitgeist, I think has shifted. I don't think it's just a question of what we can afford. It's a question of what is hot, what feels right. Fundamentally, I think for Gen Z, especially because of social media, everything that we purchase says something about us, says something about our politics, who we are, and we're constantly trying to craft our image like a brand in some way to showcase who we are and how we want to show up in the world. I think for a lot of Gen Zers, engaging with gluttonous luxury is not the message they want to send. That's not really what's cool anymore. And I don't think it should be what's cool anymore. But that isn't to say it's true for all young people, but I think it is true for many. So where does that leave you on the topic of jewelry? I mean, perhaps you haven't had cause to give somebody a piece of jewelry or consider some for your own, but does jewelry in general sound like something your generation still believes in? I mean, yes. I mean, like, there's no question that Gen Z is, like, buying jewelry. I mean, they probably in maybe higher numbers in, in that we're challenging gender norms. And most of my male-identifying friends wear jewelry these days, right? Straight or queer. And so I certainly think there's definitely appetite for watches and for jewelry. But again, I think many of them are buying their jewelry at thrift stores or from sort of mass market companies like a major Of course, there are friends of mine who love real gold and real diamonds. And I, I don't know that that's going away insofar as I think there, there will always be value placed on raw elements that inherently have value because of sort of how our economy is structured and the fact they're a finite resource. So I don't know that that's all eroding, but I think there probably will be less ostentatiousness in, 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 in what is popular. You know, so much of our industry is based on engagements and weddings and the kind of traditional, uh, you know, rites of passage. You know, we've heard of millennials getting married later. And do you see that trend continuing? Are, are, are people still interested in kind of finding the quote unquote one and spending the rest of their life with them? Or is that something that's not necessarily, you know, today you can always swipe left, I guess. Or... Yeah, no, for sure. Right? We actually did some research for XO Group years ago that was published in Bloomberg around Gen Z, you know, and weddings. And the headline reads, good news, Gen Z parents, you probably won't have to pay for that wedding. So much about how Gen Z is thinking about the world is fundamentally questioning a lot of these norms, right? Like, if we think about, you know, what Gen Zers are talking about, this idea of open relationships, the idea of polyamory, these ideas of marriage maybe being an instrument of a heteropatriarchy that limits 
individual choice and that is counter to human nature are like active conversations that many of our, my peers are having. Um, and so I certainly think a lot of these more traditionalist approaches to relationships, to life, to fashion are eroding. They're not erasing, but they are eroding. Many in Gen Zers will get married for sure. Probably most, but what those weddings look like, how much money they spend on them might look very different. Does that looking different involve, do you think, digital luxuries in a way that don't, you know, don't take up resources are more sustainable than their physical counterparts? I mean, is that one way that Gen Z might subvert tradition by by buying jewelry and watches and other luxury goods only in the digital realm? Look, I mean, that's a whole, I could talk for hours just on that topic. My short answer would be, I think of the NFT space, I think of a lot of the discourse around Web3 as overhyped. Insofar as are there Gen Zers who love this stuff? Yeah. Are most Gen Zers engaging with it? No. And I don't know that I've ever met a young person, an old person who ever said, you know what I want? To be inside my phone for 10 hours a day. <laughs> like, I don't think the metaverse solves for any legitimate consumer demand. I think NFTs certainly have a market for them, just like modern art has an art, you know, a market for it. But just as I would never pay a million dollars for a line on a white piece of paper that's sold at an art gallery, I would similarly never pay a million dollars for a digital good that has no real utility in my life. And I think probably most people agree with me. However, do I think there are fidgetal solutions to some of these questions that I think will emerge? Do I think that it might be cool that if I bought a physical good that I also got the same version in my digital world? Yeah. Like we played WebKids when we were kids and that was cool that we got this physical stuffed animal that we got to play digitally as that stuffed animal. And I think there will be a convergence of some of these technologies with legitimate consumer demand and what we're demanding in the physical world that maybe create some opportunity for the space. We're just about at our time. Ziad, I just wonder if you have any kind of parting thoughts for, for retailers, particularly, you know, an independent local kind of jewelry shop owner who might be, you know, hoping to target your generation, connect with Gen Z consumers is really starting out. Any key takeaways that you would you think they should know and really invest in? Having more candid conversations with the Gen Zers around you, I think is always something that I'd recommend to anyone and everyone. Insofar as I think what people's assumptions are about our cohort and the discourses that we're actually having are actually quite different. And so engaging with the conversations that we're having amongst ourselves in regards to what the future can look like, I think is something that must be an intergenerational, intersectional dialogue for us to hopefully build a better world for all of us. You know, because I think we need it. Is it is it is it true that you know Gen Z don't like periods in uh, texts, or is that a... I, that is certainly true? If someone sends me a period in a text, that means that they're mad at me. Uh, <laughs> they make me incredibly anxious. Uh, punctuation in in text messages is an incredibly anxiety inducing construct. I use double dashes to avoid ever using punctuation in my texts. <laughs> Good to know. Noted. Then Xers, boomers, get with it. Well, Ziad, thank you so much. What an insightful, enlightening, well, thank you for having me. Super yes. interesting conversation. Thank you, thank you. I'm sure we'll be calling on you, and I don't be surprised if you get a few jewelers ringing you up too. Looking forward to all of the above, and thank you so so very much for having me. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening to the Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on the Jewelry District by JCK. Kay.